Yeah. Do you happen to watch a show called The Office? Oh, yes. I discovered this show in college, fell in love with it. I think I'm on my fourth watch through right now, and I listen to the Office Ladies podcast. And yeah, I just love Dunder Mifflin and the Office and the characters. It's just one of those relaxing things you can watch at the end of the day that you really don't have to pay attention to, and it's like a security blanket. I agree. I love this show. It's like the show I watch when I'm sad. I just pop it on, and it's like instant comfort. Steve Carell on there. <laughs> um, in fact, I wrote my whole lab into watching The Office last year because we were, yes. um, yeah, we were trying to like train for this um, trivia night, which ended up getting canceled because of COVID. But you know, we still had a great time watching The Office and talking about everything. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm bummed that it's off of Netflix now. Like I do have the DVDs, but it's definitely not the same as just being able to like easily pull it up on Netflix and just have it keep playing every episode. Wait, you have the DVDs? I need to borrow them. Yes, gladly. Look at some of the deleted scenes. <laughs> the deleted scenes are hilarious. Like some of the ones that didn't make it in, I'm like, why did this not make it in? It's so funny. I know. They keep, um, I'm listening to the Office Ladies podcast too, and they keep talking about them. Like, I really need to check out these deleted scenes. They're great. But um, for those of you who don't watch The Office or know of it, um, it's it's this great show about, you know, it's like a mockumentary about people working in an office together. And it's just really outrageous. And, and there's this one character called Dwight Schrute, who is a paper salesman at this company. And in his spare time, he's a beet farmer. So this man is, you know, like the rest of the show, he's totally outrageous. He's intense, arrogant, and at times a complete buffoon. <laughs> I can't help but wonder with this unique character, with him being a beet farmer and all, what his stance would be on GMOs. After all, sugar beets are a type of crop for which GMOs are available. So, Emma, what do you think? Would uh, would Dwight Schrute grow GMO beets? You know what he says. Beets, bears, Battlestar Galactica. I mean, I guess Jim <laughs> says that technically in the show. But I think Dwight would probably be committed to non-GMO beets just based off of kind of his pure nature when it comes to the farm i mean when pam and jim go and visit the farm they are like treated to this experience of churning butter and going out into the field and putting poop on the field to help the crop (laughs) so i could see dwight being very not anti-gmo but not wanting to use gmo crops just to make it as similar to historical times as possible See, I understand that argument, but I also feel like Dwight is such a pragmatic man that, I mean, one example of this is he invented a device called Burger on the Go, which allows you to obtain six regular size hamburgers or 12 slider size from a horse without killing the animal. So he's just this kind of person that appreciates efficiency. And that's why I think like maybe he could be on the pro GMO side because he just want to use whatever works. But I totally get your side of the argument too, where he's you know, kind of skeptical of of medical um, interventions and, and the government and everything. So in the end, it's really a toss-up. <laughs> All joking aside, GMOs are controversial for many reasons, some of which we're going to get into today on the podcast. In our last episode, we introduced what GMOs are, as well as the science behind how they're produced. So if you haven't listened to that one already, we recommend that you go back and check it out before listening to this one. 
Today, we'll go into why GMOs are so controversial and address some of the concerns behind GMOs. And since there was a lot to talk about in this podcast, our next podcast will talk about some of the pros of GMOs. Thanks to everyone who sent in their questions on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. These questions sparked some fascinating research directions for us, and we'll get to the answers of some of these questions in this podcast. So let's start with a quick recap of what genetically modified organisms or GMOs are. GMOs are organisms that were produced by modifying DNA, specifically by adding DNA to the genome. We know that changes in DNA also occur in selective breeding and traditional seed generating techniques that involve radiation or chemicals. But the difference with GMOs is that the DNA change is introducing new DNA. Some examples could be adding DNA from a different organism, or a different version, or an extra copy of a gene that exists in the original organism. GMOs have had a lot of bad publicity from the start, simply because the science behind GMOs was not very clearly explained to the public. And to be fair, this was kind of a tall ask for scientists at the time. I mean, the structure of DNA had only been discovered in the 1950s, and the human genome was first sequenced in the early 2000s. Meanwhile, the release of the first GMO in 1994 preceded even our full access to the information in our own genes, and scientists were already moving genes around in food. It's understandable why people were skeptical. DNA as the inherited genetic material was a new concept when some of the first GMO foods were introduced. Truly, even as recently as 2010, 53% of Americans queried from an international survey on GMOs answer the following question incorrectly. So the question is, do ordinary tomatoes contain genes, or is it only GMO tomatoes that do so? And 53% of Americans said that it's only GMO tomatoes that contain genes, when we know all living things contain genes. So without a solid foundation of genetics, it was hard to convince the public why, for instance, inserting a gene from a fish into tomatoes could benefit crops. That's right. Although we talked about the flavor saver tomato in the previous episode as the first GMO food, there were, of course, other ideas about how you can improve tomatoes. So one instance was a California research group that was hoping to protect tomatoes from frost by inserting a fish gene that protects fish against frigid temperatures. But the experiments didn't end up working, so the tomato was never marketed. When the research was reported to the public, however, it was quickly dubbed a frankenfood. And as we know, in most science communication efforts in the public, once a certain idea takes hold, it's really hard to eradicate that idea or even change the public's view on something. So we're hoping that this three-part podcast series will help provide a better understanding of what GMOs are. So in the spirit of that, we'll be answering some of your specific questions. To start us off, one of our listeners asked whether food made using CRISPR should be labeled as GMO. This is a great question. As you know, we love CRISPR on this podcast and have talked a lot about this popular gene editing tool. So you might assume that the answer to this is yes. However, the answer to your question is both yes and no. That's right. The answer actually depends on a few factors. One important factor that determines GMO versus non-GMO CRISPR edited plants is what kind of change you're making to the DNA. That's right. So to make deletions, you don't have to add any foreign DNA, since cutting the DNA at a specific site is likely to cause a deletion all on its own. So the deletions could count as non-GMO. 
specific changes that require DNA to paste into the genome, such as a mutation that can change the amino acid code, would require foreign DNA or DNA from a different organism or from the same organism, and this could then be classified as GMO. Another key factor is exactly um, how are you delivering the CRISPR enzyme and the guide RNA to the plants. While this seems kind of technical, it's actually really important. It turns out that plant cells are very difficult to deliver materials into because of their thick cell wall. So some CRISPR delivery methods involve actually inserting the DNA instructions to make the CRISPR enzyme and the guide RNA, letting the cell produce those factors. And since you're inserting DNA, this counts as genetically modified organism. Last year, researchers at NC State, my alma mater, Go Pack, they developed a method to deliver the CRISPR protein and different factors without inserting DNA into the plant cells. Uh, it's nice to remember that some good did come out of 2020. <laughs> Wasn't all dumpster fire. Yeah. <laughs> Earlier CRISPR methods that don't require um, inserting DNA were used as early as 2016 when a Swedish researcher received approval to grow and eat a CRISPR-edited cabbage, but the NC State technique from 2020 actually improves this delivery, so it makes it more efficient. And just to reiterate why it's important that you're not having to insert DNA, basically you can be working more with the plant's DNA itself, which people consider more natural, even though some of the techniques that farmers use to do selective breeding aren't really as natural, even though people consider it natural. <sighs> yeah, even though progress has been made in basic research, to my knowledge, there are no CRISPR crops on the market in the U.S. yet. And as Rachel and I were just talking about before this podcast, CRISPR and GMOs is really confusing. Like when we were going and doing this research, we were confused because in a lot of ways it depends on how you define GMO, which we talked about in the first podcast. And some people have different views on what should be considered a GMO, and then that affects how you define if CRISPR would be considered, if using CRISPR would be considered a GMO plant. Yeah, some people even argue that um, CRISPR plants should be considered organic if they're, you know, for instance, not inserting the CRISPR DNA, but... Um, somehow making the plant more pest resistant so you don't have to use pesticides or insecticides that that should be called organic but of course you know a lot of people that that eat organic foods don't agree with that um, so it's all new we're still defining everything and it's very confusing <laughs> but speaking of um, crops on the market just how much of our crops are GMO today According to the USDA, over 90% of corn, soybeans, and cotton produced in the U.S. are genetically modified. That's a huge proportion, so it's very understandable that people are concerned about the safety of GMO crops as they slowly begin to monopolize our food supply. So with that in mind, let's get into the specific concerns about GMOs and some of our listener questions. Question before we get into safety. I know some people have said like, oh my gosh, GMO foods cause cancer. Do we, should we address that at all? I guess I would just say that, that the way we regulate foods in general in this country is that we'll get into this later is that they're generally regarded as safe. And with that argument, you could also say that, you know, there, there are foods that could be unhealthy for you if you eat too much or, or too little of, of them too. So you know, GMOs are just another type of food. 
Okay. Yeah, and I think we, that's a we good generally way to... regard these as safe, but we don't like go through and systematically test everything. So I guess there's no way to know. But there's, you know, you should have the same skepticism with regular food that you have with GMOs. So by far, the biggest question about GMOs is: Are they safe? In the U.S., there are three different agencies that evaluate GMOs for safety. The Food and Drug Administration, or the FDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, or the USDA, and the Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA. So first, starting with the FDA, they evaluate safety, composition, and nutritional content of the food. Most GMOs are classified as generally recognized as safe, or GRAS, or GRAS. You may recognize this term from our series on vitamins and supplements. So this means that these GMOs do not have to be approved before going to market. However, the FDA, of course, encourages a voluntary consultation to determine whether pre-approval is necessary. So this is interesting because if you think about all of the foods in our country, if the FDA had to approve every one of them, that would be a definite headache. But it is also it is encouraged for people to try and seek out some sort of approval. And I'm not sure what those numbers are for approval, but that would be interesting to know. Yeah, uh, I mean, the way we do it here kind of is it's, you know, the responsibilities with the company. And if they end up sending out a product that it's bad, of course, there's a huge recall and there's likely to be lawsuits afterwards. So there's a lot of incentive for companies to work with the FDA and, and make sure a food is safe before they're bringing it to market. So next, the EPA regulates how pesticides affect human and environmental health. And this includes both externally sprayed pesticides and genetically engineered um, pesticides or insecticides like BT corn that we'll go into a little bit later. And then the USDA regulates the planting of GMOs to make sure they are not harmful to other plants. Right. So this is like ecological concerns of, you know, could they be hurting natural plants or competing with them in some kind of way? So if GMOs are generally recognized as safe, then when exactly is pre-approval necessary? Well, in some cases, toxicity is a major concern. So when you think of the types of modifications that can be made to GMO plants, pest resistance is a major category. And one famous example of this is BT corn. BT corn is genetically engineered to add genes from bacteria that produce natural insecticides called cry proteins. And these cry proteins can selectively target caterpillars and moths and kill them, meaning that they're not going to be eating the corn and destroying it. Sidebar, one of the huge concerns from GMO critics was that BT corn would harm monarch butterflies. But an EPA study in, the ni- in 1995 found that there was no harm to non-target organisms, including butterflies. Yeah, it's cool that, I mean, you, the EPA did actually do a study on that in response to concerns from the public. So some of that does happen. And I think that's important when you're researching these sort of controversial topics is to see from both sides, like, are like anti-GMO activists being completely ignored or is there some concessions made to them to say, okay, we're trying to look at your concerns and here's information. So I think that's interesting to look at also. But returning to human safety concerns, when we talk about these cryoproteins, they could potentially be considered toxins. So the EPA required that they were tested for safety and stability upon cooking, since heating will break down proteins. 
While some cryoproteins completely broke down upon cooking and were digested without toxicity by lab animals, one cryoprotein called Cry9C did not break down quite as quickly, so the EPA labeled it as suspect, just to err on the side of caution. So they approved its use as animal feed, but not for human consumption. So in theory, regulators thought it would be simple to keep seeds for human consumption separate from seeds for animal consumptions. However, practically, it was a logistical nightmare. Between farmers storing seeds in the same silos to simply not knowing what the crops they were sold were being used for, the crinine seed containing corn made its way into the human food supply. And this, of course, when it was discovered, led to massive recalls. So, for instance, Kraft recalled millions of taco shells sold, including at 7,000 Taco Bell restaurants, which is a place that's near and dear to my heart. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, after this, people were worried about allergic reactions to this toxin for very good reason. So, 28 individuals actually filed complaints to the CDC complaining of allergic reactions. However, when this was tested and followed up, it was determined that the allergic reactions were not caused by Cry9C, but something else in the food. This is not to say that accidentally introducing an allergen into our, or a potential allergen into our food supply isn't a concern. Of course it is, but this is exactly why the FDA and the EPA work together to make companies test for allergenicity um, or the potential of, of a food to, to cause an allergic reaction, if that's a concern. Now that we've discussed some of the regulations of GMO crops in the U.S., we can address another listener question. And this is a question I've had for a long time is, why does Europe ban most GMOs, whereas the U.S. embraces them? So the major difference here is in GMO regulations. In the European Union, all GMO foods are regulated. Uh, There's no, this one can be exempt from approval. This one needs to go through approval. No discussion with the regulatory agencies. It's just default. If it's GMO, it's going to be regulated. So nothing can be exempt from these regulations like in the U.S., In order for GMO foods to be approved in the European Union, they must submit the same kind of scientific data that we talked about for the U.S. process, but then the European Commission has to vote on whether or not it should be approved. The European Commission is the executive branch of the European Union and consists of 27 elected members representing each country in the EU. Can you imagine how much GMO approval would be slowed down if the U.S. Congress had to vote on each product, and especially because... Very few of our Congress members have any scientific background. Yeah, no, that would be a nightmare. We can't agree on anything. And uh, and it would certainly introduce a lot more politics into the process than versus just focusing on the science. Beyond the regulatory differences, some argue that Europeans had more of a concern about food safety, especially after the mad cow disease epidemic in the 80s and 90s. There's an excellent article in The Atlantic that we're going to link to in the show notes, but this article discusses cultural differences and farming techniques that factored into this discrepancy of the U.S. kind of having a different view on GMOs than most of Europe does. Another safety concern is what I like to call the Jurassic Park arguments. So (laughs) basically... Copyright, trademark, Stephanie's does... (laughs) You've heard us talk about Jurassic Park before, and what I mean by this is that what seems like unimportant little changes could have unintended consequences. I guess another way, like, 
I guess this is also the butterfly effect, sort of. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I think Malcolm even talks about that in the, oh, in the movie, I right? Oh, I think he does, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but we're referring to in Jurassic Park when the scientists incorporated frog DNA into dinosaur DNA. And this allowed some female dinosaurs to change sex, become male, and begin breeding. In real life, this could not happen. But for the sake of argument, we're referring to Jurassic Park, the fictional movie. <laughs> So while we know this is far-fetched, the principle remains that we as scientists are not always as smart as we think we are, and there's always room for error. What could be some of these unforeseen consequences? One example could be that introducing new genes into plants might be harmful, might not be harmful to humans, but could hurt birds or other wildlife. Another example could be changes that affect the fitness of the plant, leading to lethality and poor crop yields. Of course, we can't predict everything, but... I would say that the chances of having an unintended change are actually much smaller with GMOs because when you're generating a GMO, you're usually making one small and precise change instead of traditional seed developing techniques that use chemicals and radiations that are making probably several and completely unknown changes in the DNA. Another issue is the poor tracking and labeling of GMO food components. Most of the time, it's a wonder of, how do I even know if I'm eating a GMO? This is a great point. And while some products proudly boast to be non-GMO, GMO-containing products don't require a label currently. However, in January 2022, bioengineered products um, will have to be labeled. But for now, it can be kind of confusing um, since, as the default, they aren't. Particularly, consumers of organic products are concerned that GMO-containing components might not be listed. So, has this been seen? As we'll discuss later, non-GMO-containing crops can be contaminated by GMO crops, although this represents a very small percentage of the whole crop. Currently, organic foods cannot contain GMO food components, and organic meats and animal products cannot be obtained from animals that were fed GMO products, such as like GMO corn. Um, So if everyone is following the regulations, you should be covered besides the unlikely chance of contamination. Um, However, I don't know as much about how, um, like who monitors those regulations and how much they're actually checking. So I guess there, there is a chance. Another concern which relates to unintended consequences is the potential for pest resistance to GMO plants or accompanying pesticides. If insects gain mutations that let them survive the GMO or pesticide, we could run the risk of developing super pests, similar to the idea of bacteria that become resistant to antibiotics. Yes, and this is where the EPA sets regulations to reduce the risk of Bt-resistant insecticides, for instance. So we don't have time to go into the specifics today, but we'll link an article in the show notes if you're interested to know um, what techniques farmers can use to accomplish this. Getting back to corn, the Cry 9C corn contamination story brings up another common concern that the widespread use of GMOs could lead to contamination of non-GMO crops through cross-pollination. It's true that cross-pollination between different crops can take place, It's actually a a well-known process called gene flow, and it can happen with non-GMO plants, too. One common example is corn kernel colors. Corn comes in an array of beautiful colors, white, yellow, and even red and purple, if you want to get fancy. (laughs) (laughs) 
Considering just the yellow and white colors, yellow is a dominant trait, meaning that one of the copies of the yellow gene is enough to turn the corn yellow, whereas the color white is recessive, meaning that two copies of the white allele are required to turn the corn white. When yellow corn and white corn are grown next to each other, the effects of gene flow can be seen pretty visibly. The white corn will have a mixture of both yellow and white kernels. And that's an important distinction here. So cross-pollination only causes the transfer of some mutations to a single seed, right? A single kernel. So you would have to plant that seed to generate a plant where every plant cell has that mutation. Although cross-pollination can occur, the reality is that this represents a very small percentage of the overall harvest. And you're not going to be propagating that uh, cross-pollination unless you're planting those specific kernels that Rachel mentioned. Yeah, and farmers really, it's really kind of faded out of fashion to keep your own seeds and, and plant them. So the chances of that are, are very low. So... One example is a 2000 study in Australia that measured contamination of a newly introduced non-GMO canola plant that was herbicide resistant. So remember that pre-GMO scientists could use other tricks such as chemical um, chemicals and radiation to induce mutations and try to identify plants with desirable traits such as herbicide resistance, which this canola plant had. Anyways, the study measured contamination in fields that were several kilometers away from the herbicide-resistant canola crop and detected contamination in two-thirds of fields tested. While two-thirds of crops may sound like a lot, when they actually looked at the percentage of plants in those fields that tested positive for contamination, it averaged to just 0.03%, or just three seeds in 10,000 seeds that were tested. Since, as we said, most farmers purchase their seeds annually, there's no chance of this percentage of contaminated plants expanding over time. Much of the fear of GMO contamination of crops comes from a 2001 publication in Nature, which is a very prestigious science journal. The authors claimed that they had detected genetically modified DNA in Mexican corn plants, even though planting of GMO crops was banned in Mexico since 1998. However, the paper was later retracted after it was shown that the detection of contamination was actually a false positive caused by technical issues with the experiment. Like we discussed in How Science Works, which was a podcast we did a few months ago, and how everyone has witnessed during the COVID-19 pandemic, scientists are only human. They can forget important controls and make mistakes. While it was important that Nature retracted this paper, publications that get as much traction as this one did in the press can have long-term effects on public trust of science and skepticism of new technologies, even though this paper ended up being retracted. We mentioned that GMO crops make up a huge proportion of U.S. crops. People often worry that our dependence on GMOs leads to our dependence on big companies such as Monsanto for seeds. That's correct. Critics of GMOs point out that companies like Monsanto require farmers to sign contracts that prohibit them from saving the seeds from their GMO harvest to plant in the next year's harvest. Along with the concerns about the economic impact of having such great power in just a few companies, there's also concern about objectivity of GMO food researchers. There's financial incentive in producing a successful GMO product, so could this potentially bias researchers that are performing the studies into finding that a GMO product is safe? 
Like we just said, scientists are human and we all have biases. Sometimes these biases can go the other way, however, and there have been instances of research misconduct where scientists have erroneously reported that GMO products are harmful. This is why it's important to be making policy decisions based off of thorough and peer-reviewed publications. And also, scientists must declare any conflict of interest in publications. So if you find a publication on GMO corn, for example, you can see if that was funded by Monsanto or if a scientist was associated with Monsanto. And that's made very clear in the article. Unfortunately, the taboo nature of GMOs and all of the regulations involved actually discourages academic researchers um, from pursuing GMO research. And academic researchers actually have less financial interest than companies like Monsanto. So hopefully we've answered all of your burning questions about GMOs with this podcast. However, we know, you know, we focus mostly on the concerns of GMOs and next week we're going to jump into the pros of GMOs. And I know there was one question um, specifically asking, you know, what are some good uses of GMOs? So stay tuned for next week when we will get into all of that. Mm-hmm.